High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is part eight of our ongoing series, Erotic 80s. I'm getting a little fed up at sexually emancipated ladies being referred to as broads. I'm not doing this because somebody's making me do it. You're a strange girl being a naughty boy. Last year, he was discovered making amateur videos of his own sex robbers. fall of 1985, Hollywood was forced to finally acknowledge something that, with the exception of a few brave outliers, it had spent four years publicly seeming to ignore. In July, Rock Hudson appeared alongside Doris Day at a press conference to announce her new TV show. Hudson, who for so many years had been presented to the public as an ideal specimen of heteronormative manhood, had been secretly diagnosed with AIDS a year earlier and had managed to keep working and to keep his declining health hidden. But there was no hiding at this press conference. 
As Day put it later, he was very sick. In fact, he could barely speak. Hudson's physical presence at the press conference was so shocking that it became a subject of national news. With speculation at a fever pitch, 10 days later, Hudson's publicist issued a statement confirming that Rock was seeking treatment for AIDS. At that time, though not everyone who contracted AIDS was gay, AIDS had almost totally been reported as a chiefly gay disease. So this statement about Hudson's health was equivalent to acknowledging that he had been living in a Hollywood closet his entire adult life. It was also tantamount to an advance death announcement. In 1985, AIDS was, as the New York Times described it in their story about Hudson's announcement, a usually fatal ailment. Though AIDS had been identified as a killer of epidemic proportions in the summer of 1981, President Ronald Reagan did not publicly say the word until September 1985, weeks before his friend Hudson's death. His administration's response to the crisis was fatally late, inefficient, and totally lacking in compassion. But with the exception of a few activists, including Elizabeth Taylor and Joan Rivers, and researcher Matilda Krim, the wife of studio executive Arthur Krim, and the co-founder of the organization that became known as AMFAR, Hollywood had also ignored AIDS. After Rock Hudson's death, the industry couldn't ignore AIDS anymore. As Ed Asner, then the president of the Screen Actors Guild, put it in a New York Times article published in August 1985, I've been sticking my own personal head in the sand, but I just had a homosexual friend tell me he has buried 12 friends. While cautioning that the industry needed to be aware not to engage in, quote, witch hunts on the set towards someone whose sexuality is suspect, Asner added that some actors were now afraid to engage in intimacy of any kind. Quote, I do know that scripts are being altered to obviate kissing. The hospital soap St. Elsewhere had featured an episode about AIDS patients in December 1983. And in November 1985, NBC broadcast An Early Frost, in which a gay character played by Aidan Quinn reveals his AIDS diagnosis to his parents, played by Jenna Rollins and Ben Gazzara. But it would still be another four years before a film about AIDS would get a wide theatrical release with the Oscar-nominated Longtime Companion. Philadelphia, for which Tom Hanks would win an Oscar for playing an AIDS-afflicted lawyer, would be another four years after that. But Hollywood made a lot of film noirs reflecting global and domestic anxiety during and after World War II, and very, very few films that directly depicted Nazis. AIDS became what historian Foster Hirsch called the background noise of a number of neo-noir films of the 80s and 90s, just as World War II and its attendant fears 
had been the background noise of noir films of the 1940s. People who worked in the entertainment industry in New York, San Francisco, or L.A. in the 80s were lucky if the AIDS crisis remained noise in the background and didn't touch them personally. But the movies weren't ready to directly reflect that. What they could do was to displace this relatively new fear of a sexually transmitted plague onto a more quote-unquote universal or fit-for-mainstream-consumption story about a straight relationship shot through with mortal fear. Released weeks before Hudson's death, and still in theaters for months as the mainstream media began to cover AIDS with more depth and compassion than it had before thanks to the movie star who had given the epidemic a relatable face, Jagged Edge was the sleeper hit of the fall. After running for four months nationwide and longer in some cities, it grossed more than a number of movies you've definitely heard of and probably have more vivid memories of, including Desperately Seeking Susan, St. Elmo's Fire, Weird Science, and To Live and Die in L.A. It basically tied for 20th place at the yearly box office with Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Brewster's Millions. In the moment, it was credited with transforming Glenn Close, a respected actress, into a bankable star. And it gave a boost to Jeff Bridges, who was coming off of a few flops. But its lasting impact in Hollywood would be that it turned Joe Esterhaus, a former Gonzo reporter whose most notable previous movie credit was a polish on Flashdance, into the first celebrity screenwriter of the 80s. Esther Haas would go on to write a number of films that we're going to discuss in erotic 90s, including Basic Instinct, Jade, Sliver, and Showgirls. A Hungarian refugee who fled with his family during World War II, spent time in a resettlement camp and ended up in Ohio, Esther Haas is now a born-again Christian, a Trumpist, and a supporter of Hungarian autocrat Viktor Orban. Jagged Edge, released about a year after Reagan's re-election, is the first movie we're discussing that feels pointedly right-wing, and not accidentally right-wing like Risky Business, even though Esther Haas, who at one point had lefty bona fides, denied that was what he was going for at the time. Sometimes art gets to the destination before the conscious mind does. That said, it might be a stretch to call Jagged Edge art. Before we go any further, a word of caution. It's impossible to talk about Jagged Edge and the impact it had in 1985 without spoilers. I personally feel like this movie doesn't work once you know everything that happens in it. It's fun the first time around, but it's not well-made enough to hold up on a second viewing. So if you haven't seen this film, I would suggest watching it before you listen any further. And then come back and hear all about how and why this strange brew of sex crimes, class anxiety, castration anxiety, 
And of course, the shaming of working and divorced women got made. We'll also talk about the decidedly stupid reason Jagged Edge inspired repeat viewings and where it fit into the careers of Close and Esterhaus, a truly odd couple that could have only been forged in 1985. Join us, won't you, for part eight of Erotic 80s. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. In our last episode, I talked about a 1984 article in Film Comment, in which writer Marsha Pally confronted Brian De Palma with the feminist arguments against his films. At one point, Pally asked, Do you think men feel women are dangerous? De Palma answered, They're used to a woman being that nurturing partner. Now when she has her own concerns, career, Men have trouble with that. And women are more sexually demanding now. Here he took on the voice of such a woman. Where's my orgasm, buddy? You call that an erection? De Palma had dramatized this, sort of, in Body Double by showing a man kill a woman by impaling her with an electric drill, a symbol so phallic that it becomes a joke about the impossible destruction some men wish their penises could inflict. But Body Double doesn't really deal with the other anxieties De Palma is talking about. 
We don't know enough about the woman in question, Gloria, to know if this man is killing her because she's been bossy in bed or in the workplace. I think it's almost better we don't know that stuff because it doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter why a man drills a woman to death because there's nothing that could justify it. And depicting a situation in which he has specific grievances would let him off the hook. But Jagged Edge does exactly what Body Double avoids. Jagged Edge is a movie about the fear of sex as something that travels from a man to a woman like a virus. It's about a killer who hates that he'll never be able to top, pun intended, his rich wife, who is also cuckolding him. He's not the first man in the world to feel this mix of class insecurity come castration anxiety, ofs. But this guy is also a practiced sociopath seducer. He's William Hurt in Body Heat or Jack Nicholson in The Postman Always Rings Twice, a guy who has always been able to get it. But in this case, he's riddled with insecurity that he doesn't deserve to get it because all he has is his ability to get it. And so, in addition to his penis, he needs another tool. Afraid that women can dominate him, he beats them to it by threatening or penetrating them with a hunting knife. The difference between the knife and the penis? The penis doesn't have the jagged edge of the knife. So the driver of Jagged Edge is male fear. But this is also the first movie we've discussed this season in which the plot is driven by a woman's fear of a man that she's already had sex with. This is relatable at any time in history. Literally, VD of many kinds are almost as old as time. But also, sexual relationships leave us vulnerable to less physical types of pain but it was especially resonant at a moment in which straight people were becoming aware of the specter of AIDS, many for the first time. Set in a San Francisco that immediately and obviously triggers memories of vertigo, in the first scene of Jagged Edge, a masked man sneaks into a woman's bedroom with a knife. We see him straddle her body, tie her hands to the headboard, rip open her nightdress and brandish his blade. That's the last we see of her alive. He writes, bitch, in her blood, on the wall above the corpse. DA Thomas Krasny, played by Peter Coyote, is hounded by the press. The first question they ask is, was she raped? They'll clearly sell more papers if the answer is yes a fact not lost on the main suspect, Jack Forrester, who runs the local newspaper empire that's part and parcel of the generational wealth of his wife, Paige. He connects the newspaper to his virility. I've put my nuts in this paper for 15 years, he tells his staff. Paige, by the way, is the victim. I waited this long to tell you this, because Jagged Edge really makes her feel like a non-entity. 
The cops suspect Jack killed Paige for her money, money he had full access to while she was alive. Handsome Jack needs a criminal attorney, and for optics' sake, he wants a woman. Teddy Barnes, played by Glenn Close, is lured by her older male boss to meet with Jack. She's reluctant, but the boss dangles the promise of a partnership. She could really use a promotion and a raise. Divorced, her corporate salary apparently insufficient to pay for childcare, she brings her two young kids to the meeting in her station wagon. These kids prove to be the film's screeching Greek chorus of the Reagan America point of view. They're super needy and cannot deal with the fact that sometimes their mom has to work. They're insolent about the divorce and constantly whining about wanting Teddy and their dad to get back together. Teddy used to work in the DA's office, but left for corporate law after working with Krasny on a case in which he hid evidence that could have exonerated a black kid who was ultimately convicted. That innocent man has recently killed himself in prison. Teddy likes the idea of getting back at the DA by going up against him and winning. Immediately, she's drawn in by Jack, who passes a lie detector test. The polygraph technician says that he's either innocent or he's the kind of ice cube the machine can't melt. Teddy herself is a cool Hitchcock blonde in wasp-waisted suits, maybe more Doris Day than Kim Novak, but the twist is that she's eminently defrostable. Of course, she and Jack end up working late over white wine and Chinese food. Of course, their trial prep involves a break for horseback riding. He's boyish yet rugged and super, super sexy. She's lonely and charmed. She believes he's innocent. 40 minutes into the movie, he kisses her. Five minutes of screen time later, they're in bed in a pretty innocuous sex scene, notable only for the fact that Teddy is on top. 20 minutes later, she runs away from him, sure he's a killer. But for the rest of the film, Teddy's looking for any sign that maybe he's not a sex criminal, so that she can get it again. That this doesn't seem totally insane, at least the first time you watch the movie, owes entirely to the performance of Jeff Bridges. As the Boston Globe Review noted, quote, the casting of the all-American Bridges as a murder suspect in a case that involves such grotesque brutality was brilliant. How could a guy with such a winning smile and such cultivated manners commit such a heinous crime? There's nothing behind that smile, no obvious machinations, by design. Just play it like you didn't do it, had been director Richard Marquand's advice. You're Jeff Bridges. You're a sweet man. Play it like that. About half of Jagged Edge takes place in the courtroom, where the information offered by the witnesses does less to help us understand the crime and more to reframe the lawyer's relationship with her client. Such as when the victim's hunky tennis pro lover, played by Marshall Colt, 
recaps Jack's wife's assessment of his quote-unquote special talent. She said the only thing that stopped her from getting a divorce before is that he was doing such a good job running the company. She said he had a million-dollar image. I remember once she said that she knew he was using her, but she said she was using him too. She said that was his special talent, really knew how to use people. At one point, Teddy's investigator, played by Robert Loja, suggests her crush on her client is impairing her thinking. Sam, he didn't do it. Yeah? Is that your head talking or another part of your anatomy? Hey, okay, what the hell? Fuck me. So much of the characterization of this working woman seems to be designed to cut her down a peg, as if to say, you want to work with the big boys? You want us to treat you like an equal? Well, guess what? Just like a man, you too can have your head spun around by a hot piece of tail. Except when it's a female lawyer who falls in love with her male client and then realizes he might be guilty after all, there's more at stake than wounded pride. Still, a lot of this movie consists of power games in which Teddy stares down the patriarchy to mixed results. Such as this scene in which she's cross-examining the tennis pro. During the course of your intimate sexual relationship with Mrs. Forrester, where did you have sex with her? Motels, uh, the house in Hillsborough, down at the beach house. The house in Baker Beach? Yes. Where the murders took place. Did Mrs. Forrester ever pay you for having sex with her? She was a beautiful woman. She didn't have to pay anybody. What kind of sex did you have with her? What do you mean? Did you tie her up? Objection, Your Honor. Sustained. You fucking bitch. What did you call me? Your Honor, I object. Denied. What did you call me, Mr. Slade? You called me a bitch. Is that what you called me, Mr. Slade? Speak up, Mrs. Slade. Yes. No further questions, Your Honor. Teddy and the whole courtroom treat this as a win, as though only the killer could regularly use that word even though we've already heard Jack use it with just as much seething vitriol. But the seeds of reasonable doubt have been planted in the jury and in Teddy. They flower in her and maybe in the audience when the witness follows her to her car and harasses her for being frigid. I bet you're a cold fuck. What do you want, Mr. Slade? You really think you're something, don't you? You twist everything around, don't you? You just don't give a shit. I bet I could warm you up. I bet I could make you real hot. 
So here's where things get really, really spoilery. If you've made it this far without watching the film, seriously, stop. Or never watch the film. Just take my word for it. Your call. So, Jack is acquitted. Earlier in the film, Teddy has said, if he didn't do it, I'll get him off. She got him off, ahem. So she becomes convinced that he must be innocent. He has lied to her again and again and again, but she is able to rationalize everything. They celebrate by spending the night together. We don't see the sex, but we do see her waking up the next afternoon and stripping the presumably very dirty sheets off the bed. It's like the fucking high point of her life, pun intended. Then she goes into his closet and finds a vintage typewriter. Throughout the trial, she had received several anonymous letters telling her Jack wasn't the killer and sending her off looking for clues that ultimately helped her get him exonerated. Those letters were typed on a typewriter with a distinctive flaw. The T key was backwards. She puts a piece of paper in the typewriter and types, he is innocent. With that last letter, she suddenly understands that she has literally been in bed with the killer. She was so enthralled to this fuckboy that she not only helped a murderer stay free, but her career is clearly ruined as soon as anyone finds out. She flees his rustic estate, goes home, and gets in the shower. And then a gloved hand breaks the glass on the French doors of her Victorian brownstone. The masked man slinks in, jagged-edged knife in hand. He goes upstairs where Teddy waits for him in bed. There's been no indication to this point of the film that she had or knew how to use a gun. And yet, she pulls a tiny one out from under the covers and effortlessly shoots him dead. Robert Loja shows up, too late to save her, but just in time to pull the mask off the dead man in her bedroom so that we see it's Jeff Bridges. And that's the end. A career woman with a broken personal life is handpicked to represent a sex criminal sociopath because he knows exactly how to play her. And he proves that lonely, unmarried women really do not belong in the workforce because they cannot control themselves. They're liable to be swayed by lust and lose their heads. And they probably shouldn't have gotten divorced either because their heads would be so much clearer if they weren't distracted by how much their kids miss their dad. And the only option at the end of the day, the end of the film, the only way this woman can defend herself and enact revenge is by shooting a gun using the tool of the patriarchy to topple the patriarchy, I guess. But what's incredible is that she shows no emotion about this. She's just killed a man who was apparently inside her 12 hours earlier, and she exudes nothing but satisfaction. His fear of women comes true, 
and she's going to go back to her life like nothing happened? Jagged Edge is the product of a completely insane cultural moment in which Doris Day can become Dirty Harry, and in fact needs to, so that the audience won't point and laugh at her for getting her brain broken by the sex hypnotism of Jeff Bridges. As it is, without asking that we turn against her as the protagonist of the movie, Jagged Edge does ask us to giggle over the idea that Jeff Bridges, at his hunkiest, would actually want to ravage Glenn Close because he was attracted to her, when of course, he was just trying to manipulate her. Audiences cheered on Teddy for shooting her way to vengeance, or at least they did when they understood that the masked man killed in the final scene of Jagged Edge was, in fact, played by Jeff Bridges. We will get to that problem later in the episode. After the break, how Joe Esterhaus became the auteur of Jagged Edge, outwitting and outlasting Jane Fonda, Sharon Tate's one-time manager, and the head of the studio. At the beginning of the 1970s, Joe Esterhaus had been a star reporter at the Cleveland Plain Dealer. But in 1971, he was fired for publicly criticizing the paper, which at that moment was fighting off a lawsuit related to a story Esterhaus had authored. A woman had sued because Esterhaus had centered her in the story, giving the impression she was his key source, when in fact, he had never spoken to her. The newspaper lost the lawsuit and had to pay the woman $60,000, equivalent to almost half a million dollars today. This kind of thing might end a journalism career today, but back in 1971, Esterhaus easily moved on to Rolling Stone, where he reinvented himself in their house mold of gonzo journalism. From there, it was an easy skip to Hollywood. In the late 1970s, Norman Jewison hired Esther Haas to write a screenplay based on some reporting he had done on the labor movement. Esther Haas's first draft was 400 pages long, about 280 pages longer than what it should have been. The resulting movie, Fist, was a flop, but it led to some lucrative rewriting work most notably on Flashdance. After that massive hit, Esterhaus was approached by Marty Ransahoff. We've discussed Ransahoff on this podcast in the context of his role as the manager of Sharon Tate. After Tate's murder, as an independent producer, Ransahoff's notable films included Silver Streak and Save the Tiger. Ransahoff came to Esterhaus hoping the writer could produce a fresh take on a genre he loved, the courtroom drama. Ransahoff wanted to make something like Anatomy of a Murder, taking advantage of the comparative permissibility offered by the rating system to depict a grisly sex crime. He told Esterhaus he wanted blood and hair on the walls. He kept using that phrase, blood and hair on the walls. And he wanted it to end with a twist, what Ransahoff called a fuck 'em if they can't take a joke ending. 
Columbia agreed to make the film after Jane Fonda tentatively signed on to play a female lawyer before Esterhoffs had even written the script. He interviewed an actual female criminal defense attorney who told him she never believed any of her clients were guilty, and if she did, she wouldn't be able to defend them. Ranzahoff warned him not to lose sight of their goal. They didn't want to make a Jane Fonda movie, even if they were literally going to make a Jane Fonda movie. As it turned out, Jagged Edge was not a Jane Fonda movie in either sense of the word. When Esther Haas finished the script, she rejected it, asking for a page one rewrite that would have turned it into a different movie. Incredibly, the studio stood by the writer over the superstar. Was this a sign of how much power Esther Haas had amassed? Maybe, but not really because of his track record, which was nowhere near as impressive as it would become. He had more power in this instance because there were several male executives at Columbia who were amongst his closest friends. Ransohoff, who would eventually feel excluded from this inner circle and lash out accordingly, would homophobically call these execs Esther Haas's boyfriends. When it came down to choosing to support either their buddy or a female star who was perceived as a sanctimonious pain in the ass, the boys' club looked out for their own. Branta Hoff was one of the boys whose support helped ensure that Esther Haas's vision would reach the screen. Columbia executive Frank Price actually tried to talk Esther Haas out of his fuck him if they can't take a joke climax, insisting that the film have a happy ending. Teddy could suspect Jack was the killer, but she would have to be proven wrong, and the movie would have to end with the lady lawyer in her male client's arms, secure in the knowledge that he was not a murderer after all. Esther Haas was like, so she's dumb then? And Price said she wasn't dumb. She was a woman who fell in love and lost her head. Price insisted that Esther Haas write the film with Price's ending. Esther Haas and Ransahoff plotted to withhold the script until the executive was fired. As Ransahoff put it, they all get fired sooner or later. He was right, and Esther Haas got his ending. It's interesting that Esther Haas would include this anecdote in his book, because the finished film, which he presents himself as the author of, portrays Teddy as nothing if not a woman who fell in love and lost her head. That's why it's all the more aggravating that the only way for her to restore order, according to this movie, is to shoot to kill. It feels like a regression to a time in movies when if a woman enjoyed sex, per the production code, someone had to die. Sure, in the 1930s through the 1950s, it would have been her. But is it really any better if it's him? In any case, with Jane Fonda out, Esther Haas and director Richard Marcond decided to offer the role to Glenn Close. By 1985, Glenn Close had won a Tony Award, had been in four movies, and had been nominated for Oscars for three of them. Still, she wasn't a movie star. She was perceived as being unfun, too serious for her own good. 
in one interview designed to promote Jagged Edge, she quote-unquote complained about living in a nation of voyeurs obsessed with this cult of celebrity. The interviewer noted that this speech was delivered, quote, with that penetrating, judgmental gaze so central to her film portrayals, and that it also undercut the very publicity tour she has undertaken. The underlying message was, you'll never become a star unless you lighten up, babe. And her sexual persona was somewhere between non-existent and ludicrous. When Rantahoff heard about the casting, he was livid. She's a matron in training, he said. There's a love scene in this movie. Would you want to fuck her? I wouldn't want to fuck her. To this point, she had not yet played a conventionally sexualized movie role. When her characters did have sex lives, they were often depicted as a problem. For instance, in Lawrence Kasdan's generation-defining 1983 hit The Big Chill, Close's character, racked with guilt over the affair she had years earlier with a friend whose extended funeral after-party she's now throwing at her house, invites her husband, Kevin Klein to have sex with her best friend, who wants a baby. It comes off as an insane act of self-sacrifice and self-punishment within the movie's pathetic attempt to salvage the sexual revolution by reorienting it around the family. If The Big Chill was wish fulfillment for boomers that had become yuppies but longed for their radical past, it at least suggested that submitting to the Reagan 80s caused these characters some measure of angst. When it came to Jagged Edge, there was no trace of that angst on screen, but Close felt it, at least initially, behind the scenes. After accepting the role, the actress asked for a meeting with Esterhaus. According to the writer, Close said that she was worried that the film was a revenge piece, that the final scene would feel like, quote, a vigilante thing, a right-wing thing. Esterhaus claims he was shocked she would suggest such a thing. It was the first time in my life I had ever been accused of writing a right-wing thing. Esther Haas later wrote, I had been involved in the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, and I tried to explain to her that it was a self-defense thing. Close was right to be worried, and she was not able to save the material from its very occurrent misogyny and stand-your-ground concept of kill or be killed. But even if it was against her better instincts, it was savvy for her to take the part. In one interview, she noted that her kind of role, quote, would have gone to Robert Redford 15 years ago. That Jagged Edge centers a professional woman and her desire was still a big deal, even if it ultimately undercuts her intelligence and her humanity. After all, this was still 80s Hollywood, and the boys' club mindset ruled, even on the set of a film on which a woman was top-billed. Close's body became a topic of scrutiny, not least by the actress herself. 
There is just one sex scene in Jagged Edge, and it's relatively brief, although we do see close topless. She was nervous about being naked on set, and in an effort to support his star, Richard Marcon declared that only essential people would be allowed on set. It was decided that producer Ransahoff was not essential, which really pissed him off. He insisted his interest in being on set for the shooting of that scene was purely professional. I don't want to fuck her for Christ's sake, he said, elaborating on how unattractive he found her body. He was worried it, she, wouldn't be filmed correctly. Quote, I want to make sure there's heat in the scene. When despite this protest, Ransohoff was not allowed on set, he began trying to sabotage Close's performance by gossiping about how terrible he thought she looked in the dailies, and specifically how fat her ass appeared on screen. He claimed he was going to force the studio to reshoot the sex scene, and that in order to make sure it was sufficiently sexy, he was going to be, quote, standing there fucking her with my eyes. This gossip reached close, of course, who now became increasingly self-conscious about how she was framed, lit, and costumed. She actually talked about this in interviews. My face has to be handled very gently by cinematographers, she explained to Maureen Dowd in a column about Jagged Edge, adding, I don't think I've yet been filmed magically. As previously noted, the sex scene that made it into Marcon's director's cut was pretty tame. And unlike so many of the films we've discussed, Jagged Edge didn't have any highly publicized battles with the ratings board. This may have been because Marty Ransohoff lost his battle to graphically depict the sex crime that motivates the action of this movie. Instead, 25 minutes before the end of the film, a brand new character takes the witness stand and details her assault by a masked man, an assault that was identical to the attack on Paige Forrester, except that the masked man left this other woman alive. Back in the days of the Hayes Code, the Production Code Administration reviewed scripts, so describing a graphic crime would be almost as verboten as showing it. But under the MPAA, there were, and are, specific words that help to determine ratings. For instance, you can usually get away with saying the word fuck only once and not in a sexual context before a PG-13 is automatically bumped up to an R. But other than that, there are no specific restrictions on descriptive language. But even though Jagged Edge easily got its R rating, it still proved to provoke much controversy. Some of it was warranted. Some of it was dumb as shit. Jagged Edge occasioned no less than three think pieces by prominent male critics, who cited the very fact of movies with female protagonists as a trend. The first, by David Sterrett of the Christian Science Monitor, noted that, quote, 
In the male-dominated movie business, strong roles for actresses have been all too rare lately. But a handful of new pictures could be signaling a turn for the better. Starrett lumped Jagged Edge in with the Patsy Cline biopic Sweet Dreams as portraits of smart, capable women. The best headline of one of these trend pieces belonged to Charles Champlin's take in the Los Angeles Times. Watchable year for actresses. Champlin had a lot to say about Close. Quote, she can be tough and she is always intelligent, but the camera also perceives a depth of compassion and with it, a bruisable vulnerability. Those contrasting ingredients of toughness and vulnerability are crucial for any actress, and they give Close her large appeal. Champlin then raises a feminist argument and swiftly dismisses it. Quote, Women lawyers of my acquaintance are not pleased by Close as counsel for the defense whipping into bed with a client, with the suggestion that it happens all the time. Then again, the client is Jeff Bridges at his most charming. And you might say, it is just a kind of debriefing. This is what we saw in our episode about Richard Gere. Women are saying that there is a problem with their professional status being taken seriously. And a man with a publishing platform is saying, I hear you, but wouldn't you rather just think about sex? This was still preferable to whatever the New York Times' Vincent Canby thought he was doing in a November 1985 essay headlined, Are New Women's Movies Guilty of Sexism in Reverse? Canby's piece focused primarily on films in which, quote, a woman's right to a career is taken for granted. He also cited Sweet Dreams alongside Jagged Edge and also, somewhat bizarrely, Plenty starring Meryl Streep, which is a period piece spanning from World War II through the 60s. What united these female protagonists, Canby writes, is that they, quote, aren't passive little creatures who accept their fates without question. They play roles more often associated by movies with men. They do things. Yet, they do these things at a certain cost to dramatic coherence. In not one of these films does the woman protagonist have a relationship of any importance with a man who comes up to her ankle bone. As a result, most of these new women's films seem just as superficial as the old-time tearjerkers, exemplified by Stella Dallas. If men aren't cads in these new films, then they are virtually non-existent. So... It was dramatically incoherent for female characters to become involved with trifling men. And what was sexist about these films, in Canby's mind, is that the male characters are not heroes. When it comes to talking about how Glenn Close embodies this problem in Jagged Edge, he reduces her principal attributes to upper-class and waspy, indicates that she's a less satisfying copy made from the prototype of Meryl Streep, and boils her performance as Teddy down to a single scene in which she is passively enthralled to Bridges. Quote, She's as good as the material allows her to be in The Jagged Edge, especially when she's horseback riding. 
why Canby's editors let him organize a trend story around half a dozen movies he didn't enjoy so that he could make the argument that movies about women are sexist, I don't know. But it probably had to do with the fact that movies about women were still a novelty. And that put a lot of pressure on each film to center a female experience, to be all things to all people. Notably, all of the reviews that ran in major newspapers written by women were critical, if not scathing. Esterhaas was particularly annoyed by the Janet Maslin review in the New York Times, in which she criticized the, quote, harsh lighting, blunt performances, and artless, no-nonsense dialogue revealed by the occasional bit of excess color, and called close, convincing, if a trifle schoolmistressy. Maslin predicted the audience would be way ahead of the movie. The reviews of some male critics, like Champlin and Roger Ebert, suggested the film was ahead of them. Ebert cited the way it, quote, dangles one clue after another before our eyes, daring us to decide who committed the murder. The machinery in this movie is so efficient that we don't know the answer until the very last shot. Jagged Edge is really something, acknowledged Sheila Benson in the LA Times. It vanishes from the memory like an old grocery list, yet while you're in it, you're caught. Shocked, intrigued, confused, unnerved, and finally snapped right back in your seat with fright, but held all the way. Still, she called Close glowing but daft and added, for someone in the legal system, the woman can be a decidedly dim bulb. This spot-on assessment by a female critic of the movie's insistence on making its female protagonist bad at her job stands in sharp contrast to the way many male critics read the film as being part of a new wave of movies remarkable for merely caring about women who had jobs. But no one was as vicious towards Jagged Edge as Rita Kempley of The Washington Post. You may remember Kempley's review of Body Double, which I quoted in our last episode, in which the critics suggested that Brian De Palma needed to be stopped before he killed fictional women with a phallic symbol weapon again. Now, the director of Return of the Jedi had gotten in on a similar act. Violent crime against women is not entertainment, Kempley began her review. Star 80 was not entertainment. Body Double was not entertainment. And Jagged Edge is not entertainment. It is commercially packaged abuse. And we are supposed to call this anger art. She goes on to call Markand the culprit, but also assigns blame to Close, who in Kempley's phrasing, quote, elects to star as the lovelorn attorney for the defense. In other words, Close could have elected to not support this, quote-unquote, sexploitation by not taking the role. I don't always agree with Kempley. I don't agree with her that Star 80 and Body Double inflict violence against women for the purpose of entertainment. And though I think Jagged Edge is a worse film, it's not even in the same league in terms of graphic violence. That said, Kempley's body of work is really interesting and notable for her refusal to let filmmakers off the hook 
for trafficking in what she saw as movie crimes against women. At the very least, she argued for equal opportunity crimes against men. As she wrote in her 2002 essay, Murdering Women for Entertainment, why aren't more men sawed in half? The trouble was, the culture of the 80s, as we've already seen, was constantly trying to redirect attention away from any iteration of feminism that would throw a wrench in literal business as usual. And any dissent was easily co-opted into marketing. Esther Haas wrote that he and the Jagged Edge team, quote, realized the movie would be controversial when, at an early screening, during the first scene, a woman got up in the dark and started to scream, I'm not going to watch this exploitative piece of shit. That woman stormed out of the theater, meaning she missed when the movie got really stupid. The fact was that Jagged Edge riled people up, and that turned out to be a good thing commercially. They knew it was a hit at the Toronto Film Festival, where the audience went crazy when the masked man broke into Glenn Close's house at the beginning of the final scene. The movie would win the festival's audience award. Columbia subsequently produced a marketing campaign promising that the film would inflame passions and spark debate. The tag on some newspaper ads asked the question, which do you trust, your emotions or your evidence? It wasn't a blockbuster immediately, but became a word-of-mouth hit and held on in the box office top 10 for months. Six months into the run, Markhand and Esterhaus were in New York, and after a boozy dinner, they ambled into a theater showing the movie, thinking they'd take a seat and watch the audience watching it. But there were no seats for them. It was still sold out. The extended success of Jacket Edge owed in part the fact that it wasn't very well made. After the film had been in release for about a month, Gene Siskel wrote a column in the Chicago Tribune about a strange phenomenon he had become privy to. The Chicago Tribune's film desk was regularly receiving 20 letters a weekend from moviegoers who weren't sure exactly what happened at the end of the movie. The two shots revealing that Bridges was the man who Close fired her gun at were not long enough or clear enough for the audience to be sure it was him. People wrote to the film critic asking, who was the bad guy? Was it the newspaper publisher or the tennis pro? So Siskel called Marty Ransahoff, who was happy to throw Markhand under the bus. It's not a good shot, he acknowledged. He admitted that the confusion over who was unmasked at the end of the movie was unintentional, but was only helping the movie's box office because so many people were going back to see the film a second time. The fact that people were talking about this and that Jagged Edge was making extra money off of what amounted to incompetent or indifferent filmmaking and not talking about the arguments against the movie made by women, whether they be the radical feminism of Rita Kempley or the more measured and less political concerns of Sheila Benson, is testament to how effectively Jagged Edge had managed to thread a very specific needle. 
It paid lip service to women's equality by centering a woman's story and casting a serious actress who was not just there to inspire sexual fantasies. This was enough to inoculate the film for the ways in which it forwarded an inherently conservative point of view that not so subliminally worked to make the audience doubt whether equality between the sexes was actually a good thing. We will see this problem taken even further, really as far as it could go before the end of the 80s, in two weeks, when we talk about another Glenn Close film, a film that created a whole new paradigm for sex as a topic of mainstream Hollywood movies. Next week, we're going to talk about the movie that should have done that, that wanted to do that, and which, instead, sent the message to the industry that some things are truly better experienced in the privacy of one's own home. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blakes. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, you must remember thispodcast.com. You can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast, get lots of bonus You Must Remember This content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and some glimpses into other aspects of my life. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night, 